Welcome to this week's issue of Riff Raff News and this week we'll be taking a look at the breaking news on Dominic Raab and we'll also be asking are the SNP in a tailspin? And having a quick look as well at how this country is tackling the obesity crisis. Yeah, so I suppose we'd better start with the breaking news that's happening uh, as we're recording this. Um, Dominic Raab has resigned his position as Deputy Prime Minister yeah. and uh, the Ministry of Justice on the basis of um, a report that's been issued on, on these, um, well, they were bullying allegations, weren't they, from three different departments that he's worked at, which um, Ministry of Justice, uh, the Office of Brexit, exiting the European Union, or DEXU, I think it was called, or a BEXU, or I don't think it's in place anymore, is it? Because we're that's meant to have been successfully achieved, doesn't it? The, oh yes, of course it has. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and and um, the uh, Foreign and Commonwealth Office, of course, which he was uh, he was Foreign Secretary for a while, and it, it would appear that um, despite uh, not being very happy about it, that the the report. Or not being not well, not being a slam dunk, has been sufficient to to suggest to him that his position now is untenable, because Rishi Sunak wasn't prepared yesterday, having received this report, to make a decision one way or the other, was he? He was um, he was sitting on it overnight, and um, it, it's um, well, it's been put out by different Conservative MPs that and and cabinet ministers that maybe. Uh, he was given the opportunity to jump rather than, than than be pushed later in the day. I don't know whether um, you know the background to um, to these complaints as to what what has actually been said. Have you have you been reading? No, I, I haven't. I haven't. Other than there've been quite a number of them, mm. so that that did look a little bit suspect when they kept coming out of the woodwork. Yeah, there's yeah the the figures are quite. Um, uh, 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 quite astounding really in terms of um, I think there were somewhere in the region of 20 different people or, uh, involved in terms of bringing complaints forward now whether those mm, are people who, yeah, who've just witnessed it witnessed these episodes or otherwise I don't know um, and and obviously there's there's people who have been affected quite considerably I mean there's a suggestion by Mr. Raab in his resignation letter, which is quite bitter, as you probably would have expected. That the uh, that, that um, and he's written a piece for the Telegraph as well. That the unions within the civil service have cobbled this all together and been working in conjunction with one another and have been out to get him, which is a bit um, you know uh, I. I find it hard to believe that all these people will be working in conjunction to get rid of uh, to get rid of them across departments as well. Mm. It just does seem sounds a, bit, a little uh, bit paranoid. Yeah, just just a wee bit. I mean, the other thing that um, is called into question here throughout these episodes at three separate departments, he he was on occasion um, advised that his behaviour. Um, wasn't particularly appropriate in respect of, and he would mm. argue, I think, in respect of process, in the way he was dealing with some of the civil servants that he had to deal with. But it, it's, um, you know, there's a, always has been, hasn't there, a, a certain machismo about people who feel that uh, 
they're really good at their job and they will they can get things done and they can achieve things and they will bulldoze there's almost like um i suppose it's like like a trump type thing that they will trump talks about how he would solve the russia thing overnight if he got it so it's it's a similar type thing that you have to be aggressive and you have to be thrusting and you have to um, use all your testosterone at, at any particular level to be able to get things achieved there's a big part at the beginning of this report where they talk about Dominic Raab's day and how he starts work at, 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 uh, early in the morning and doesn't finish until 10 at night um, and he works Monday to, to Thursday I mean somebody made the, the point earlier today that he wasn't around when we were evacuating Kabul well I, I seem to remember that he was on holiday wasn't he <laughs> yeah, exactly. and they had some like junior civil servant uh, manning the phone yeah, manning the phone <laughs> and um, yeah yeah but that apparently isn't, wouldn't appear to be his normal his normal um, when he's when he's not off in Magaluf or wherever he was on holiday, he, he oh, okay. works works quite hard during the uh, during the day. Um, and I mean, Downing Street confirmed in December that he was facing eight formal complaints over alleged bullying, six mm. of them from his former stint at the Ministry of Justice, and one from when he was Foreign Secretary, and one from as we were saying when he ran the Brexit Department. Uh, uh, all but two of the formal complaints involved multiple accusers. So again, there's people around. This this report, unfortunately, I think we were we were talking off microphone. This report, unfortunately, doesn't go into the details. And and I think we came to the conclusion maybe that's because if he had to obviously go back into those departments, it might prove difficult for him to be able to. Yeah, work it'd be very them. awkward, wouldn't it? Yeah, if you'd given yeah. evidence and it was obvious who you were. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I mean, the total number of complainants is thought to have been at least two dozen, and and mm, could have been more than thirty, they reckon. So it, it's yeah. quite quite extensive. I think um, looking again at the report, though, that when we're talking about the uh, Ministry of Justice and the uh, Office of Exiting the European Union, the Brexit Office, the general overall view I think is that he, he he may have been able to get away with those and brush over those but I just want to read you what it says about his time okay. at the Foreign and Commonwealth Office and in 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 brief they um this is the 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 government um report itself so it's been it's been um clawed from there but they call in the DPM the Deputy Prime Minister and this is Mr Tully who's who's talking the the DPM made a legitimate management choice on the basis of his genuine adverse view about the work of others, albeit without any grounds for disciplinary action. Uh, in reaching and implementing this management choice, he acted in a way which was intimidating in the sense of unreasonably and persistently aggressive conduct in the context of a work meeting. It also involved an abuse or misuse of power in a way that undermines or humiliates. He introduced an unwarranted punitive element. His conduct was experienced as undermining or humiliating by the affected individual, which was inevitable. So he clearly knew, the session is that he knew what he was doing. It is to be inferred that the DPM was aware that this would be the effect of his conduct at the very least. He should have been aware. 
On a separate occasion, the DPM referred to the Civil Service Code in a way which could reasonably have been understood as suggesting that those involved had acted in breach. This had a significant adverse effect on a particular individual who took it seriously. The DPM's conduct was a form of intimidating behaviour in the sense of conveying a threat of unspecified disciplinary action and was experienced as such. He did not target any individual nor intend to threaten anyone with disciplinary action. However, he ought to have realised that his reference to the Civil Service Code could well have been understood as a threat. So I think uh, what we've said, we've, we're sort of dancing on a pinhead here, aren't we, really? We're mm. saying that um, m much the same as, as we were discussing in terms of Boris Johnson, that, that nobody's explicitly told him that he's acting in a way that could be interpreted as, as bullying. And so he can continue. Although what's quite interesting in the report as well is that once these... Um, once these allegations and the investigation had been opened, all of the um, complainants that were interviewed said that his behaviour had changed markedly. So once the complaints were made, so he knew it would it would be suggested that that how he was behaving before was different to how he behaved after mm. the uh, after the complaints were made. So I find it. Um, I mean, there's a big, I haven't had a chance to read it, there's a big piece that he's written for The Telegraph today, which um, which is uh, a rebuttal of uh, all of these allegations. And, and um, it'd be interesting to see where his career goes now. Well, it will, won't it? So I think, um, to be fair to him, we should we should try and scan that article. Uh, he's resigned, so that's, that's a matter of fact. Uh, and... My observation of these things is that what normally happens is he'll he'll go away for six to nine months, um, go and do sit on the back benches, mm. uh, and then he'll pop up again in in another role. <laughs> uh, I see that uh, they have replaced the deputy prime minister already. Have you seen that? That yeah yeah I did. Um, uh, Dow Dowden. Dowden yeah yeah the the guy used to be at the culture and media and sport. Yeah, the, the blonde haired. Blonde-haired fellow, yeah, yeah, yeah. Who, um, yeah, it'd be interesting to see. Uh, I'm not quite sure actually. What I mean, clearly during the pandemic, uh, when when Boris was laid up um, mm. and and fighting for his life, then then he came into his own a bit there, didn't he? That particular role. Yeah, he did okay actually. Yeah, I thought he did okay. But under normal circumstances, I'm not quite sure what a deputy prime minister does. I mean, they always used to say, didn't they? Because um, under Thatcher, they never had a deputy prime minister, but they always say that they always said at that point that every prime minister ought to have a little Willie. <laughs> <laughs> Willie Whitelaw was her. Oh, it was him, was it? <laughs> oh, okay. But uh, yeah, I, I'm not sure what they do, yeah. but I'm sure they have some something to do. Maybe a maybe a, an ear for the prime minister. Maybe that's the whole idea. Yeah. And someone yeah. to sit sit next to him on the front bench. Yeah. So we'll keep an eye on Mr. Raab's career and see where yeah. it goes from here. Well, Sean, I've been having a look at uh, the SNP because some very interesting things have been going on uh, mm. recently and, and some of it you'll be aware of. But on Wednesday, it was reported that some of the SNP's senior members thought that Nicola Sturgeon could 
only could, be arrested following her husband being interviewed by detectives and also the party treasurer being interviewed by detectives. Uh, in fact, she's the only SMP official named on the party's accounts, and I have had a look at them, um, who has not been arrested. So that was quite incredible when I read that. Um, but before getting into the timeline, perhaps it's worth also reflecting when, when you sort of sit back and think about it. It's also quite odd that the CEO of the party itself um, was the husband uh, of the party leader and first minister. Mm, mm. And that's, that's unusual, isn't it? it yeah. It's just odd. There's, there's nothing illegal about it. Mm. But of course, it does put a lot of decision making um, capability uh, and leadership of the party itself in the hands of effectively one household. Do you know whether, so, um, just a matter of interest, yeah. do you know whether uh, he was the treasurer when she was elected leader or vice versa? Do you, do, no, I don't. No. I'm sorry, I don't know the timeline. No, I'm that just, would be, yeah. I, yeah. I presume it would have been, had to be one or the other, I guess. But um, yes. just be interested to know whether... You know, because they, it may be that they they had, I think they got married in 2015 or something, wasn't it? I right. think around that time, whether they got married as a result of, so you see it came the other way around almost, so that one became treasurer and leader and then okay. yeah. built a relationship as a result of that. I don't know, I'm just making an observation. Well, indeed, as, as was mine, it was just an mm. observation that... that uh, it, it was just unusual, I would mm. think, that mm. uh, you have one household with two very senior positions in the party. But mm. anyway, um, so as I say, she appears of what, as one of three party officers on these annual accounts. And of course, along with uh, the gentleman we've been talking about, her husband and the former CEO, Peter Morell, and a chap called Colin Beatty. And Beatty resigned on Wednesday uh, as well, uh, you mm. may may have seen that. Um, he was arrested. Beatty was arrested on Tuesday, so it's all very recent as part of Operation Branch Form. That runs off, really runs off the tongue, doesn't it? Uh, uh, an investigation by Scot Police Scotland into possible fundraising fraud, and of course, Morell had already been arrested earlier in the month. He, mm. in fact, was questioned for eleven hours and was then released without charge, which we should make clear, mm. um, pending further investigation. And he had also resigned as CEO in March of this year, following a row over membership numbers, if you yes. recall that. Yes, I remember that. Yeah. 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 Um, and that had become more apparent, of course, during the recent SMP leadership election, as uh, it was necessary to ask the members to choose the leader mm. when you had the vote off. Yeah, so, it became so clear. That, yeah, that's all that. That's how all that arose. Um, the arrest also coincided with raids on the Sturgeon Morell marital home, mm. uh, and also the SNP HQ in Edinburgh. And the, the home itself was searched for two days, which isn't, if you think about it, it's an awful long time mm. to search a property. And you may recall that rather bizarre um, spectacle of two massive blue police tents mm. on the lawn. Yeah, it was very peculiar. Very For, for something yeah. um, of that, uh, uh, 
an alleged um, investigation of that nature to have to have tents like that outside. You yeah, and it was, it was the reason it was slightly bizarre because the the, the housing estate where the Sturgeons live is I would call it a relatively modern mm. new build estate. Mm. Uh, very calm and quiet and very pleasant and there was these two massive tents on the lawn so it just looked kind of weird uh, and then uh, it was revealed that uh, they also um, uh, were interested in a, a German uh, motorhome uh, not not any old motorhome it was a Niesmann Bischoff oh right if you know your motorhomes no yeah, this, that. I uh, thought that was a biscuit. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's Biscoff, Sean. Uh, but it, it was um, worth £110,000. So we're talking about a um, serious bit of kit mm. here. Mm. Uh, anyway, that was that was seized as well. So uh, apparently this was um, purchased uh, as, a, as a battle bus in mm. 2021. Uh, which was interesting. But this this motorhome wasn't kept on the Sturgeon Morrell Drive. This was at um, uh, Mrs. Morrell's Senior's, uh, the mother-in-law's okay. place. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So that's what you do, isn't it? You buy a motorhome and you park it on your mother-in-law's drive, don't you? <laughs> is that what you do? Well, uh, I don't. This depends how how um, mobile your mother-in-law is, really. If she's off on, but yeah. then she. In, in the active service of the party. I don't know whether she's a... Oh, it's someone else from the family. No, I didn't yeah, didn't, yeah. didn't find that in the accounts. No. But anyway, according to the mother-in-law's neighbours, um, the vehicle itself had sat unused since 2021. So that's two years mm. uh, when the Nishman Bischoff had um, not been motoring as a motoring home. <laughs> So, so that's that's just slightly bizarre in itself, really, isn't mm. it? But uh, there we are. Um, I should also say that the investigation concerns six hundred thousand pounds raised by supporters, mm. uh, specifically to fund the second independence referendum, and allegations that these funds had been in some way misappropriated. No more information given, but. That's this was, a, this was a GoFundMe campaign, wasn't it? So, yeah, I think so. Yeah, 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 one of these online things. Mm. Yeah. So, a uh, fair amount of money. Mm. Um, the It's been directed by Crown prosecutors, so, you know, quite high level, in response to seven complaints that have been made around July 2021. Mm. So, uh, no more detail given as well. So, that's that's a bit of a mystery. Um, and then, of course, it emerged that um, Mr. Morell had lent one hundred and seven thousand pounds, six hundred twenty quid, actually, interest-free to the SNP, and this is also in the scope of the investigation. Uh, so that loan was made in June twenty twenty, uh, but allegedly not declared until August twenty twenty two. Hmm. So there's this sort of movement of funds and an asset and some claims of misappropriation going on, hmm. uh, which is which is all very strange. And um, only this weekend, actually, BT, uh, the, the former treasurer, told SNP national executives that the party was having difficulty balancing the books, <laughs> which, <laughs> read into that what you will. Uh, but this was partly due to the loss 
which has now emerged, of 30,000 paying members in just over one year, mm. uh, which is a lot. Uh, I think they had about 100,000. So that's a big chunk of their membership base. Yes, yeah. it was 104,000 they had. Um, so they do declare, nevertheless, that they are solvent. And as you would expect, Sean, I've had a look at that. Uh, I'll come on to that mm -hmm. in a second. And, of course, they've also got a new leader and first minister, Hamza um, Yousaf. Mm, mm. Um, and I do feel a little bit sorry for him, yeah, to be he's honest. he's sort of um, been dropped into it, really, with this, all this going on, isn't he, at the moment? Quite right. I mean, following Nicola Sturgeon is a, is a hard act to follow, mm. uh, whatever your politics, to start with. And then this has come mm. his way like a train. Um, he's now under pressure to suspend the party whip from Mr Beatty. Uh, but he has said, Hamza Yusuf has said, there's no reason to ask um, Nicola Sturgeon to resign or have her membership suspended. So that's mm. clear. Uh, but yeah, he really has um, inherited an absolute basket of issues. And, and you know, just another bit of colour. Um, he's only become aware of the motorhome assets since he was appointed party leader. So pretty senior... Uh, members of the SNP were not aware no. of of the motorhome. You say, well, did they need to be? Maybe not, but it's just a bit weird. And then in another twist, which makes you wonder what's going on, the firm, the accountancy firm Johnson Carmichael stopped handling the SNP account last October, uh, but this only went public on Friday the 14th of April, so very recent, mm. and they had been the SNP auditors for more than 10 years but chose to move away. And, you know, taking it outside of this, normally uh, the auditor is, uh, in inverted commas, sacked mm. by uh, the company, yeah. not the other way around. <laughs> so that that's odd. Now, as I said, I've had a look at the last published accounts. And as far as I can see, they're available up to 31st December 2021. So they're quite dated. And the 2022 ones will become due soon, I guess. Uh, income was four and a half million uh, uh, with 2.5 million in membership fees. And that's why that drop of 30% of the members is important because that's quite a hit if you've lost 30% of that two and a half million. Do the maths. Yeah. Um, expenditure that year was about five and a bit million. Uh, they had a deficit in the year of 750,000, a one million surplus the year before. Uh, but the largest item being campaign costs of 1.6 million. So there you go. Mm. Um, so you can't really glean a lot from 2021 accounts because obviously they're already, uh, well, well, they're already 18 months old, aren't they? Yeah. yeah. Um, but it does show the importance of the the um, membership base. So I, I, I don't know if this has ever happened before in any political party in the UK, but I can't remember these different um, issues all around financing. No. And obviously these arrests are strange. Um, and I guess you could say, well, well, well why, does it, why does it matter? Um, I think if you look at the political fallout from this, if you follow the contra controversy of the gender recognition issue, mm. The, the, what will now be the absence of uh, an independence referendum, Sturgeon's resignation, 
and all that's going on with the funding and the the background investigations it, it's obviously likely that the SNP vote will be significantly weakened mm. and you'd therefore imagine that voters would turn in Labour's direction uh, so not only could all of this have an impact on Scottish politics but it could have a significant effect on the general election in 18 months or so. So as we um, we move around subjects, don't we, on this pod, Guy? So I, I mm. noticed there's been a, a report released recently into obesity, which okay. is a problem that obviously we're facing in this country. And I just thought I'd have a, a deeper dive into that and see what the current state of affairs is with regard to obesity, because it's obviously having an impact on our National Health Service. Uh, it's having an impact on cost to the country. And um, we don't seem to be getting anywhere. And, and government doesn't seem to like the idea of intervening all that much. Or you'd think that, wouldn't you? There doesn't seem to be much in the way of intervention. I know we had a few years back uh, extra taxation on sugary drinks, which I don't know if you remember that, which had a yeah, I do, quite, yeah. quite a positive impact. Um, but but Labour and Conservative governments have, have displayed a similar reluctance to get involved. Um, I think there's this sort of nanny statism thing. Yeah, that it's, not, that's the thing, isn't it? Yeah. So, quiz question: We like figures, don't we? And you? Yeah, like we a like. Quiz. Uh, yeah, I like good quiz. Yeah. yeah. Um, so. Since 1992, okay, uh, in terms of successive governments, how many strategies do you think there's been to counter obesity in the country? Oh, 1992. Mm. So we're now, what are we now, about 30 years on? Yeah, it would be 30 So that's probably about 15 governments. So I'm going to say 15. Do you know, that's not bad. 14. Oh. 14 different um, 14 different strategies and and following through from those strategies how many how many policies do you think have been introduced oh so a strategy isn't a policy then no, right a strategy okay. is, is an over overarching arching you know, overarching the policies are policy. the, are the specifics underneath i guess right i'm going to do simple maths five per strategy 75 bit more 125 no, you're you're way off. <laughs> which way? Which way? Uh, it's it's more. Five hundred. A little bit more. <laughs> Six hundred. A little bit more. <laughs> all right, I'm going to go all out there. A thousand. It's not quite a thousand. No, Six hundred and eighty-nine policies have been introduced oh my to counter goodness. obesity. Uh, as well as the, uh, I won't quiz you on this one. As well as the creation and later abolition of 14 different bodies to oversee progress. And and it's not halted the trend. So the trend with all of this, no. with all of the money that's been spent, um, has been has been upwards to the position that we're now um, the third, for want of a better word, the third fattest country in Europe um, behind Malta and Turkey. So those are waddling Turks. They're still... <laughs> Those Maltese. <laughs> exactly. But we're there. So we've done a good job on curbing smoking, which, as you remember when we were kids, a huge number of people used to smoke. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. the effect of this. So why is it that we're no good at... Uh, 
Is it is it there's no will? Is it that there's um, vested interests at play, as as there were initially, weren't there, with tobacco? Or is it that we're just destined to be um, a fat man of Europe? I well, I'm not sure it's irreversible, but um, if we take your reference point, 1990, what was that, 30 years ago and yeah. a bit, so yeah. much has changed, hasn't it? Society's changed, uh, and you sort of pick on a few things. I think there's something about uh, we're more affluent, mm. and therefore, it, although it might not feel it right at the moment, but we do have more disposable income to buy some of the more unhealthy products. Mm. Um well let's call them fatty products oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. so I think that's a feature and obviously with that comes um, the fast food culture uh, which going back 30 years yes there were a few but not mm. as many as there are now and, and in fact, it's even worse, isn't it? Because now you don't even have to leave your front door <laughs> to get a package of no. high cholesterol, high fat dinner. And the pandemic hasn't helped that, has it? It hasn't helped yeah, that. No. Yeah, yeah, it hasn't helped that. So you've you've got that side of things. I think there's something about busyness. Um, I can't make my mind up whether it's laziness or busyness, but, but let's just take a typical a young family now. Both parents are probably working full time mm. uh, and just don't have the same amount of time as maybe our predecessors to uh, prepare healthy food so it's so easy to go for the sort of convenience option isn't it yeah um, so there's something about that uh, and then also and I've got no stats on this at all but you know anytime I, I, I go out uh, and I, I, what I do notice is is the sort of capacity of the UK, particularly younger uh, segment, to to binge drink, uh, and that 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 might not manifest itself in um, being overweight or obese right there and then. But as we all know, once you get past the big three O, mm. it catches up with you. So there's lots of stuff going on, uh, and. All of that I know would apply to other European countries. You can make the same argument. But for some reason, we seem more susceptible than most. We're, um, we're good at being fat. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because the, um, there's, no, there's no reason why, even if we have fast convenience food, why um, we ought to be in a position why they, they can't be produced healthily. You know, I'll take, for example, pizza. You'd think, in theory, that pizza would be one of the healthiest foods on the planet, wouldn't you, really? Because it's basically um, dough and some cheese on top and some tomato tomato sauce. There's nothing. I mean, the cheese's got fat in it, clearly, but not to mm. the degree where you know the Italians have been eating pizza for years and years. And if you go to Italy, as I'm no doubt you have been. It's a completely different product, isn't it, that you buy in an Italian cafe to that which you buy from your local supermarket over here and yeah. put into the oven. Yeah, it is. Which is which is quite bizarre. I um I don't I don't really understand why we we manage to pack our convenience foods because of, exactly as you say, there's there's the argument that um that that uh, families are a lot more busy nowadays than they were maybe thirty years ago and have the need for convenience food um so I don't, I don't i don't really understand that particular element of it i don't see why these companies can't 
try and cut down. I mean, the, the binge drinking thing, I don't, I don't think we, we, we... I mean, we used to binge drink, didn't we, in the 90s? What I... What I uh, OK, maybe it's rose-tinted glasses, but what I don't remember doing... Hmm. Uh, on a on a let's call it a good night out <laughs> is is it, you you tended to stick to the pints hmm. and it sounded a very male conversation you know uh, you tended to stick to the pints and and as a result well a glass it, there's of a point for the ladies as somebody was <laughs> <laughs> El Murray in a fruit based drink for the ladies uh, the <laughs> dear oh dear uh, but but there came came a point um, where you just couldn't. You literally couldn't stomach anymore, literally. Yeah, yeah. But what I noticed, uh, I've been on a couple of steak do's with um, my, my son and what have you, and what I notice now is he, the beers come out until about 10-ish, mm. and then they go on to the shorts, and then they go on to the shots. And it, it, it this all goes on until 5am. Now, I'm not saying everyone's <laughs> like that, but, but I remember our clubs used to close at 2. Well, absolutely. And you had to have and a salad if you wanted to stay in drinking till 2. That's another pod. <laughs> and a stamp on your finger. Uh, <laughs> have you had your salad? <laughs> That's really going to help, isn't it? Uh, but at least it was healthy, sure. But uh, so, I don't know. I don't know. There's, there's, I've got no evidence for it. No, uh, no, but you just you just sort of open your eyes when you're out and think, my God. Yeah, it yeah. is a bit. I mean, may, maybe one last thought is um, we were discussing earlier the way that the Japanese deal with this. And yes, they they, um, they apparently their employers have a duty of care to their employees to keep an eye on 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 the old waistline. Yeah, and when they do that. <laughs> to their annual appraisals they they sort of get the old tape measure out and, and find out yeah. whether they put on any and if, yeah. if they have yeah. sufficiently um, they refer them off to their GP to go on weight management courses yeah. I mean uh, yeah. I mean I've never known um, no that's not true actually because you've got the old sumo wrestlers and you they're, they're quite a little bit overweight but generally speaking the old Japanese seem to keep their their, yeah. their weight and yeah. height ratio in order, don't they? Um, maybe they've got well, it, an idea it's, there. It's, it's, it, it, I digress, but then things. Well, how would that work in practice? Because you can't go manhandling your employee, can you? I was thinking I I had to get well, my I waist made unless you're unless you're, the unless you're in the CBI. Oops. Bit topical there. <laughs> yeah, well, shows were current. Yeah. But I, I had my waist measured uh, yesterday, actually, um, as part of an NHS thing. And mm. the guy, I, it was what I would call the Wonder Woman approach. What mm. happens is he gets you to hold the tape measure just above your belly button, which is depressing because that's where the waist is. Yeah, yeah. Not the lower bit, the thinner bit down the bottom. So you immediately are two inches up on the game. <laughs> anyway. You press it, uh, hold it, and then you do a twirl while oh. he tensions this very thin tape measure. And then you pick up, so he doesn't actually have to touch your person. Oh. It's very clever. That's the Wonder Woman it's, bit. Where it's the Wonder Woman, it's where and, you twirl around. And, yeah, and yeah, yeah. Come so, out wearing so, your skirt and. That's it. And, yeah. That's it. And two inches fatter than you thought you were. <laughs> so actually, it might be that. The reason we're getting fatter is because of the way we measure the waist. Yeah, we could work there, absolutely. Yeah. 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 But um, oh well, maybe we need to keep an eye on that then, and, and uh, yeah. well, maybe we could, you know, we could do an annual 
annual check or what have you on this pod and sort of we could ah well if you're up for it i am um i'll have to think about that (laughs) 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 okay sean so in case you missed it um you like a bit of yoga don't you oh i do i do yeah downward dog and um that's a dog and yeah <laughs> is that it? <laughs> <laughs> Any, anything, anything involving dogs? <laughs> okay, sun salutations, namaste, and all that stuff. Yep. Anyway, um, this is quite incredible. Uh, you may have heard of the US management consultancy firm Bain, quite a big firm. Mm. Uh, they've announced that they're going to be paying recruits to spend a year learning to be yoga instructors. Oh right! New rec- this is um, yeah, yeah. This is to help the business. Well, I guess it is. It's a bit odd. Um, so this is only for new recruits from the top-notch business schools who, mm. who've done postgraduate qualifications, so masters degrees, MBAs, that sort of stuff. Right. Um, but they're prepared to pay them thousands of dollars to hold off from joining work and effectively kill time. Right. Uh, so one idea was to say be a yoga instructor another one was to head out on safari for the year uh, and the whole idea is it would delay their start date until april 2024 and this right. is according to the wall street journals uh so you think well why why would they do that and the reason is um that the sector the management consultancy sector is predicting a bit of a downturn this year Mm. as company profits are hit by the cost of borrowing inflation reduced demand all that good stuff uh so it's just entirely odd um Mm. and this the so the thinking is if if we have to pay a new recruit 20 to thirty thousand dollars to do something else and Mm. not join us it won't cost us as much as actually having them on the books uh and then um when we get busy again they can um they can come back in in their normal role. Well, How about only, that? It's only just struck me, but I suppose it's a bit like um, professional football clubs taking teenagers on from from you know when they're when they leave school because they're not going to yeah. play in the first team for goodness knows how long are they if they play in the first team at all. But it's to avoid other clubs searching out that talent and and signing it up before they get the chance. Well, I think so that's I think that's the gist of it. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, so I thought that was quite interesting. Obviously, yeah. I asked them for a comment, as, as I always do. <laughs> I thought you were going to yeah. say, you asked them for a job. I, I was, well, <laughs> I wouldn't mind going on safari. No. But I said, well, what's going on? They said, well, they thought, Bain said, alternative solutions such as yoga and safaris will stretch candidates. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And help them understand the game better. Oh, well, I did that. that sounds good to me. Sounds yeah. yeah yeah ideal I I um I think um yeah gap year effectively but um, well I I um, not, mine's nothing anywhere near as exciting in case you missed oh. it section this I was looking at um at the the uh, what's happening in Russia at the moment in terms of their yeah. their new recruitment campaign do you see that because they're running short of um of of soldiers to throw into Bakhmut, I suppose, and the Donbass to uh, yeah. to 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 solve the the depleting front line, and they're running a campaign to try and recruit voluntarily another four hundred thousand um, men 
predominantly to to go and fight that's a huge number it is it's it's enormous isn't yeah. it yeah yeah um i think you we were talking earlier when you, and you were mentioning how it how it compares to the british well, i think army. our british army is about eighty thousand mm. troops uh in terms of you know full-time yeah. in the service yeah, yeah. So that that alone would be five times the size, wouldn't it, of the That's British Army? Astonishing, isn't it? But and about they, half the size of the Ukrainian Army, I think. Yeah. Whether they'll get that amount or that number, I yeah. don't know. I mean, that's that's a matter of time. But it reminded me to a degree of of Kitchener's campaign. It's a television campaign, but Kitchener's yeah. campaign. Do you remember Britain needs you with a big finger pointing? Well, you'd out probably remember it more than me, Sean. But yeah. <laughs> Yes, I, I, yeah, yeah. First World War, wasn't it? It's the First World War, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, it was... Um, Iconic poster, isn't it? You still see it now, don't you? You do. And it was a similar um, similar call to patriotism and serving yeah. the fatherland. And, I mean, at that particular point, it was, uh, you know, it'll all be over by Christmas and we'll be victorious and, and back from back from the trenches, which is ironically where we are again now, isn't it? Or where the Ukrainians and... The, and the Russians are again now back in trenches on the front yeah. line. Um, but this is a TV campaign where they're using, they're putting effectively civilians in military uniform, men, as I said, predominantly, and putting them into uh, jobs. So you see somebody driving a bus or somebody serving at a checkout or a construction site or what have you, where mm. they're wearing military uniforms. And and the narrator is saying, is this how you serve the fatherland? The you know the motherland. Is this what being a hero entails? Working in in Civvy Street when your country effectively needs you on the front line. So pulling on the heartstrings and saying, you know, you need to you need to get out there and serve um, Mother Russia and uh, and go and and serve your country on the front line. It'd be interesting to see how many they do manage to recruit. And I thought mm. it, it was diametrically opposed when they're talking about heroes on the front line with um, with with uh, Vladimir Putin himself, who, who seems content to sit at the end of a 60-foot table for fear of catching a virus. So that catching sound a cold, yeah. yeah. Yes, I don't think that's lost on many people, probably a lot of these young men as well. Uh, yeah. But if you think about it, they lost, they've probably emptied the prisons now, haven't they? They have. And um, they lost, if you believe the stories, several hundred thousand young men mm. um, when talks of conscription sort of came up earlier. So, I don't know, 400,000, I'd be surprised if they got anywhere near it, if I'm honest. Well, you'd, yeah, you'd, you'd have to... I mean, they, they've tried conscription itself. I mean, you do... I, I, I don't know whether this particular campaign involves them um, asking men outside the ages of the conscription call-up, you know, so it might be even men in their 60s or, or mm. more young teenagers. It might be, but the campaign, as you've described, sounds more of a sort of young young person's sort of mm. target audience. But uh, I guess that's because he doesn't want to be seen to be rolling out a new a new conscription campaign yeah. where they're, they're forcibly told you've got to go yeah. up to the front. I think that at some point, as you say, public opinion will start to think, you know, this isn't um, this isn't quite the swift 
special military operation that was going to take a few days and be over and done with. And even um, Prigozhin, you know, this guy, the Wagner Group guy, um, he, um, he's he been saying over the last few days, quite interestingly, that he doesn't see that there are any Nazis at all in Ukraine. So he's going against what... There's, there's, there were minor fissures, if not cracks, opening up in respect of how things are going. I mean, I guess that's probably the case on both sides, but, but it's quite interesting to see how things are, mm. uh, um, are moving forward. But um, we'll keep our eye on that then. Yeah, we'll keep an eye on it, definitely. Yeah, see where we go. Well, that's it for this week. We hope you enjoyed Riff Raff News. Please leave some comments on the app or on our Facebook page. And uh, please subscribe and then episodes will drop automatically into your podcast feed. 